Okay. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, then they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmakers over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field, and all their work they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on their birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to the Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives come to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And from Exodus 2, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because, all their, because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God hear, heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This semester, we're going to, uh, to be preaching through and studying through uh, a book in the Old Testament, the second book of the Bible called Exodus. Um, why are we doing this? Um, a couple reasons. For one, I think a lot of us don't know how to read the Old Testament. Um, it's two-thirds of the Bible, and, and yet a lot of times um, in the church, we don't preach it. It necessarily, because it's a little bit hard to understand how does this really apply to my life today. But in Luke 24, uh, Jesus, after he's resurrected, he meets with his disciples, and it says this, beginning with Moses, who we find in Exodus, beginning with Moses and the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What Jesus does, as, as soon as he's resurrected, is he meets his disciples, and he opens the Old Testament with them. And he begins showing them how everything that's been written in the Old Testament, which was Jesus' Bible, by the way. He didn't have the New Testament. He says, everything that's been written in the Old Testament, it's pointing to me. The whole Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, is about Jesus. And so I want us to see how this is true in a book like the book of Exodus, which has all kinds of amazing and kind of crazy stories. But why, why are we studying Exodus in particular? Because what the Bible claims is this, we need saving. Every single one of us needs saving. And what Exodus does is it shows us like literally how God does this. Not in a theoretical sense, but in a real historical event and time and way. God moves through the course of normal history to save people. 
And he does it even when things seem dire and hopeless. He does it even when the people seem unworthy of saving. God still moves through the course of historical events to rescue his people. And this isn't just true for Israel in the book of Exodus. It's true of anyone who would believe in Jesus. The Bible claims that God works through historical events in our own individual lives. Sometimes, um, even when things seem dire and dim, and he most certainly does it for people who don't deserve it, who are unworthy of saving, he moves towards people to rescue them. And this is the kind of God that we're presented with in the book of Exodus. So really what I want to look at as we meet together and study this book, I want us to consider the question, who is God? Who is he? And why does it matter to you? And so that's what we're going to look at tonight. So let me pray for us and we'll begin. Father, thank you for this chance to open your word together. And I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of all of our hearts will be holy and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, on Monday, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, I was reminded of an article I read um, about my home state, Alabama, um, earlier this past year. Uh, it's an article from theringer.com, and it, uh, it begins this way. The documents that prove that Josephine Bowling McCall's father was lynched are displayed in her living room like courtroom exhibits. There's a front page, 1947 Montgomery Advisor article reporting that Elmore Bowling, a 39-year-old man of color of excellent reputation, was shot seven times outside his own store, six times in the front with a pistol, once in the back with a shotgun. There's Bowling's death certificate confirming the veracity of his passing, if not the circumstances. There's a Chicago Defender article asserting that Bowling was targeted because he was too successful to be a black man. In a letter from Montgomery NAACP chapter member William G. Porter to NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund attorney Thurgood Marshall, noting that the killing of a black man via gunshot by what he speculated to be a pair of white assailants represented a new type of lynching. Josephine says that she was five years old when the killing took place, leaving her and her six older siblings fatherless in Lowndes County, Alabama. My memory is of my father deceased in a ditch with his eyes wide open, she says. Years later, she wrote a 349-page book bluntly titled The Penalty for Success, My Father Was Lynched in Lowndes County, Alabama. She spent 10 years of her life building an argument about America's history of racialized violence that still reads as radical. This happened, she says. In the face of something like this, what do we do? What must have that young girl felt looking at her father and living with the reality of this for years? We see a similar kind of situation here with Israel. And I'm sure that she's asking the same question that they were asking. Does God see this? Does God see? Does he care? 
Tonight, I want to look at three things. First, a question, then a response, and then so what? So first, the question, does God see? Does God see what is happening in our world? Does he care? Some background to this story of where we pick up in Exodus. So God comes and makes promises to this guy named Abraham. And he makes promises and says, look, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you. He's, Abraham's this old guy. He's like, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you into this great nation. I'm going to give you land and you will be blessed. And Abraham begins to experience some of this blessing. He gets a child and later his child has a child. And then his child has 12 sons. And these sons of Jacob, or who later was named Israel, um, they are like a clear demonstration of God's promises coming true. If he's making Abraham into this great nation. But then, um, a whole is not as perfect as it may seem. Because, um, first off, there's like all kinds of drama happening in their family. Like, one of, his, one of uh, Jacob's kids, Joseph, is like really proud. His brothers are sick of him. They sell him into slavery into Egypt. And then, um, not long afterwards, there's a famine that comes and hits the land where Abraham's family is living. And they go and they seek asylum. They're refugees in Egypt. And when they get there, the only thing that helps them is the reality that God, through their disobedience, has actually been at work. In spite of all the wrong that they've done, God has been at work and he's risen. He's risen Joseph to a position of power so that Joseph's able to save his family, to save the nation and feed his brothers and sisters. And so at the end of Genesis, we see that the nation of Israel is like 70 people. That's it. But now we pick it up here in Exodus 1, and this refugee nation living in Egypt has begun flourishing. And it's no shocker um, that as this group of refugees begins to flourish, that they are seen as a threat to those who are in political power at the time. They're seen as a threat to Pharaoh. And so Pharaoh hatches a plot. First, his plan is to enslave them. But they continue to flourish. And then his plan is to tell these Hebrew midwives, as soon as the babies are born, kill them. But the Hebrew midwives don't do that. And so finally, his plan is, any boy that you find, throw him into the Nile River and drown him. And that's what's happening here. That's what we find. And you have to imagine that Israel must have just been asking, does God see this? Like, does he care about this right now? And it goes on for 400 years. For 400 years, they endure this. And perhaps you found yourself asking that same question. Like, does God care? Does God see what's happening in my life? Now, certainly none of us live under the same kind of bondage that's depicted here in um, the story of Israel or even the story that I read from Josephine Bowling McCall in Alabama. But the reality of the world that we live in and what the Bible talks about is that all of us in some way or another, we live in bondage. Paul talks about in Romans 8.21, he says creation is groaning in bondage. What that means is, is that he says we're in bondage, the creation is in bondage to corruption. That means that like everything in our world falls apart. And it doesn't take a lot of observation to see that that's true. I mean, there, we have like a, the second law of thermodynamics. It's like a scientific law that says this. That like all things fall apart. Um, 
We see things like natural disasters, animals go extinct, nations go to war, citizens of the same country get into their own tribes and spew hate at each other, humans are marginalized, we persecute, we judge, we condemn, we ignore each other. The war, like, creation is falling apart. We're in bondage to corruption. And maybe you have felt in bondage in some form or fashion. Uh, and maybe you feel like no one sees. You know, UT is a place, and I, <laughs> I've heard people talk about this, um, that it's like the most densely populated place in Texas and at the same time, like the, one of the loneliest places in Texas. Because you can, you're in this like huge group of people and it's so big that it's very, it's very easy for people to not see you, to feel like you're not seen, and to feel like you're not seen in whatever struggle, whatever bondage you may be in. Maybe you feel, maybe you feel in bondage to like a, someone in your family, like a toxic member of your family. And like when everyone's asking you, how was your break, you like kind of paint a smile on, but you know that your break really wasn't that great because of that person in your family who is just toxic and kind of has your family in shackles. Or maybe, maybe you're in bondage to just like utter loneliness and not having anyone that you feel like you can trust. And whenever you do tell someone something, you feel like they gossip about you. Or maybe you feel in bondage to like the expectations that are put on you, whether it's by um, your culture or by your parents or the neighborhood where you grew up, where like you feel like I've got to live this kind of life in order to feel like I'm okay, in order to feel like I'm, I'm right in people's sight. And that is, man, that can feel like bondage. And you know what? Like, there's, there's data on this. That not only is, is that a huge experience for people, um, for people really of our generation in our country, but also in, in his book, um, Hurt, Chap Clark talks about how our generation has largely been abandoned. In other words, um, a lot of the help that you needed, whether it was um, help with tutoring or help with um, uh, sports or help with learning a musical instrument or help with like a problem maybe you're dealing with and some counseling, we are a generation of people who, instead of being cared for often by our parents, it's outsourced. It's outsourced to somebody else. And so for many of you, maybe you don't really feel like the real you can be seen, even by your parents. And so maybe that's why you like lie to them all the time or try to tell them that things are okay or you act like things are great, even when you know that it's not. There's this feeling of abandonment that many of us have in that way. Um, but the Bible says there's also another way that we find ourselves in bondage. In fact, we do it to ourselves. So um, my, uh, one of my best friends in high school is this guy named Andrew. He told me a story about when he was, in, uh, he was eight years old, his first year playing Little League Baseball. And uh, he was a first baseman. You've got to imagine Andrew, red hair, bowl cut, huge glasses. That's Andrew awesome. He looks like a, he could like be on a commercial for like jelly or something. Um, so he, uh, <laughs> he's playing first base and 
He said his team was terrible. Like no one on his team had ever thrown like a good throw to him so that they could actually get an out. So he's kind of like just given up that anyone's going to actually make a good throw to me during the game. And his mind is totally wondering, and he's playing with that like ginormous uh, elastic waistband string that Little League pants come with. You know what I'm talking about? Like the huge one. And so he said he's just like sitting there and he's kind of like looking at the dandelions and he's wrapping the thing around his waist and then around his hands and he's not really paying attention. And then all of a sudden he hears the crack of the bat which is a terrible sound if you've ever been playing baseball and your mind wonders. Some of you know what I'm talking about. I've definitely felt this feeling. And he sees the ground ball going to the third baseman. So he runs over to cover first, and he's like, literally for the first time that year, the third baseman threw an amazing throw to me. Like, just threw a seed to him. Just shoot. And Andrew goes to catch the ball, but he's handcuffed himself, his arms, to his body, where he literally can't like, even lift his hand up to, to catch the ball that's coming to him. And so the ball just goes like, boom, just like drills him like straight in the chest. And he falls back. And then like the enormous second grader who had hit the ground ball just comes and like smashes into him at first base. And there's this like huge like eruption that happens there. And Andrew's just like lying on the ground, hurt and still like tied up by his drawstring. <laughs> and... I would suggest to you that that image is exactly what we do with ourselves and our sin. That what we do, that what Romans 6 says, is that all of us, we're all enslaved to sin. That all of us find ourselves in bondage to our sin. And we create our own masters. We create our own masters that we, we, that we then serve and that then hurt us. Because all of us were made to worship something. Bob Dylan, in one of his songs, says you've got to serve somebody. It's just who we are. That every single one of us has something that we're serving and giving our life to. And we look to these things because we think that they will serve us and give us meaning. But we end up serving them and becoming enslaved to them. Instead of them serving us, we serve them. And what we find is that in the end, they hurt us and leave us empty. So maybe you, maybe, uh, like maybe you serve fame or people, or people seeing you as um, important. Listen to what Madonna says about that. Y'all still know who Madonna is, right? Like she's still relevant. Okay, good. Just a second. All right. Lainey knows who Madonna is. Thanks, Lainey. She says this. My drive in life comes from the fear of being mediocre. That's always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but then I feel that I'm mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else because even though I, haven't be- because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody and my struggle has never ended and I guess it never will. This constant chasing after this thing that I think is going to serve me, but it ends up leaving me empty and insecure. Or maybe, maybe the thing that you think will serve you is success, being viewed and seen as successful, or like having, or becoming successful and being satisfied by that. Listen to what uh, Victoria Pendleton said after she won the 2016 Olympic gold medal in cycling. She said, I was an emotional wreck beforehand. I worried that I would be the one person who let down our team So winning was really just a relief. And even then, 
Even that felt like a complete anticlimax. It was very surreal on the podium, and as soon as I stepped off of it, I thought, what on earth am I going to do now? I found it quite hard to deal with. It was as if I've got no purpose anymore. Do you hear the bondage? Slaving away to get something and then receiving no wage of security. And entrusting anything with our lives is what the Bible calls idolatry. Entrusting anything besides God with our lives is what the Bible calls idolatry, and this is sin. And what sin's ultimate goal, the Bible claims for you, is this. Sin's ultimate goal is for you to be destroyed. Sin's goal for you is that you would die. Romans 6 says, for the wages of sin is death. And so we come to this, and we see our human condition, the condition of our world, and it begs the question, does God see, and does he care? The second point is this, a response. So um, one, of my, uh, one of my college roommates and best friends is a guy named Curtis. Curtis is now uh, a missionary in Southeast Asia, and that's about all I can tell you because he's like in a really sensitive part of the world where it's dangerous to be a Christian. And uh, Curtis has taught me more than really, almost anyone besides Chrissy, uh, my wife, on like, what it means to love someone. And this guy just like drinks in scripture and breathes it out and just loves people like crazy. So think, uh, and, and like, he's kind of a meathead. He's funny. He was like a big football player in high school. And, um, so I want you to imagine him. And uh, he's in his car in, in a big Southeast Asian city. And he's waiting for his wife and daughter and son to come out of their high-rise apartment that they live in, this really densely populated, kind of like rough part of town. And uh, while Curtis is waiting for them to come, he looks in front of him, and about 20 feet in front of his car, there's a man on his cell phone who kind of catches Curtis's eye. And before Curtis knows it, um, these two other men ride up on a dirt bike and they jump off the dirt bike, put it on the ground, and go to try to take this guy's phone from him. These guys are what's called snatch thieves. This happened like a couple weeks ago. So um, Curtis sees this happening, and then he sees one of the guys reach and grab one of the, it's like a big U-lock that you would lock your bike with, but this is a dirt bike, so it's massive. It's like a crowbar, like big, heavy bar. And the guy's going to get it to go and like, hit this guy who's resisting them. And Curtis, I want you to like stop and imagine like what would you do in that situation? And this is what Curtis did. He was like, I was so mad that they were just going to hurt this guy who like wasn't doing anything, minding his own business. So just like I jumped out of the car and I just started praying like, God, don't let me miss. Don't let me miss. Don't let me miss. And He's like, the guy didn't see me, and I just like lunged at him and like speared him like, as hard as I could and just like tackled him to the ground. And I held him on the ground, and then like the other guy ran away, and the, the other guy looked up at me, and I just went like, God sees everything <laughs> to his face. <laughs> just like the most, I was like, why did you say that? <laughs> 
And then, and then like he holds him there while the police come. And then of course, Curtis is like saying, but I want you to know like Jesus will still forgive you. There's this man named Jesus Christ. He's from Nazareth. And he'll like, like, he's like telling him the whole time. And uh, he, told, he told us this story. And I'm like dying laughing. And yet there is no more theologically true statement of warning and justice that he could have given in that moment. That God sees everything. That all injustice and wrong that's done in this world to the innocent, that God sees it. Later on in that article that I read to you at the beginning about Miss um, McCall and her father, it picks up and it says this. On April 23rd, Bowling McCall and her husband, Charlie, visited the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, a new memorial in Montgomery, Alabama, dedicated to victims of lynching, slavery, Jim Crow segregation, and mass incarceration. The project was developed by the Equal Justice Initiative, a Montgomery-based nonprofit that provides legal representation to prisoners, many on death row. The centerpiece of this effort is a sprawling wood and metal open-air structure featuring 800 six-foot columns each one representing a county where a lynching took place in the United States, 800, between 1877 and 1950. The Equal Justice Initiative took on a mass-scale version of Bowling McCall's quest for truth, crisscrossing the South over the course of six years to compile a comprehensive list of these public murders. The organization issued a report in 2015 documenting 3,959 lynchings across the region. Additional research in more states has increased that figure to 4,400. Each of these victims' names is etched onto one of the 800 columns which surround the viewer at eye level upon entering the memorial. EJI executive Brian Stevenson says this, you can't appreciate the scale of that terror unless you've walked with these monuments hanging over you. And when you're in them, you feel overshadowed by them. You feel haunted and I think we should feel haunted by this. See, the injustice of this world, it needs to be seen to be healed. It needs to be brought to the light so that it can be made right. And here is what's true. Look again in Exodus 2. This is right before we really begin seeing God is going to, we're going to look at this in Exodus 3 next week. God is going to begin acting He's going to do something about it. Why is he going to do something about it? Exodus 2, during those days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Do you see that? God sees it. He sees it. And look, there's a reason that the Exodus story has given hope to people who have been hurt by this world or enslaved or oppressed. There's a reason that the book of Exodus was a text that Dr. King came back to over and over and over again. It's because Exodus shows us a God who sees, who will not let injustice endure. It's why Dr. King, on on March 25th, 1965, the end of his march from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama, he stood in front of the Capitol just below the window of the segregationist governor of Alabama, George Wallace, and he said these words. 
I know you are asking today, how long will it take? How long? Not long. Because no lie can live forever. How long? Not long. Because you will reap what what you sow. How long? Not long. Because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Because God sees and he knows. But this is also a warning. This truth that God sees, it comes with a great warning because if God sees everything, it means he sees us too. He sees all of our sin. He sees all of our guilt. He sees all the wrong that we've done. And so how do any of us have hope if God sees us? And this is where I want you to see how amazing it is. Y'all, if you haven't listened to me yet, listen to this. It is incredible how much this story points us to Jesus, how much Jesus fulfills this passage that we read. Because just like the babies in Exodus 1, Jesus is born as a refugee. Our Savior was a refugee. He was born into a time when the world power was oppressing God's people, but this time it wasn't Egypt, it was Rome. He's born in a time when the king of his land was exterminating all the baby boys in his neighborhood. And like Israel, Jesus becomes a refugee when Joseph and Mary flee Israel and go to, all, of all places, back to Egypt. And it doesn't stop there. You have to see that God, he doesn't, he doesn't just wave at his people's suffering in Exodus 1. He acts. And in the person of Jesus Christ, we see God's final and ultimate act to, to what he sees about, to what he thinks about the injustice in this world. He enters into it. He enters into it to do something about it. And what he does is he takes suffering head on. And not only that, he takes our sin onto his body. And at the cross, this is, what's ha- this is why the cross is a big deal. Jesus takes our sin onto him and he puts it to death so that we are, if you are in Christ, if you believe in him, you're no longer in bondage. You've been freed. And not only that, but he gives you his righteous life that he lived up until the point of the cross so that God can see you and smile. Um, a pastor named R.C. Sproul, before he um, was going to speak at this big conference, he had, he had all these people stand up, and everyone in the room um, were like professing Christians. It was like a big Christian conference. He goes, okay, if you think that you're more righteous or as righteous as your pastor, I want you to keep standing. And like half the room sat down. Y'all like, would probably all be standing still if I was your pastor. But anyway, he, uh, then he goes, okay, if you think you're as righteous as Billy Graham, I want you to keep standing. And like 10 people kind of like scattered throughout the room are still standing. And then he goes, okay, if you think that you're as righteous as Jesus Christ, I want you to keep standing. And everyone like sits down, except there's just like one person standing. And R.C. Sproul says, man, only one person gets it. In God's sight, you are as righteous as Jesus Christ if you're in him. You, you literally are that right in his sight. It is a fact, the Bible says, that Jesus 
takes on our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So you can stand before God and be seen and be loved. God loves you. That's what he holds out to you. All right, so what? My so what for you tonight is this. If you find yourself like enslaved to some kind of sin or hopelessness or grief, do what Israel does and just cry out to God. And he will answer you. Cry out to him. If you, don't, if you have n- never believed, and you've been coming to REF and been thinking, or if this is your first time, and you're like, man, a lot of like what, what uh, I hear about like these famous people and these successful people saying, I'm like, man, I'm just like, it's none of it satisfying. And you kind of feel that. Wait. Like, there is freedom held out to you tonight. Cry out to God. If you are a Christian, what I would challenge you and encourage you to do is this. Christians, our faith will not make sense to the world if they don't see us moving towards people who are oppressed. Because the Bible says that that's what God did for us. So because he moved towards us when we were in bondage, how can we not do that for others? Like, do you, if, you, if you profess Jesus... My question to you is, do you have a time like during your week when you, when you like, intentionally do that? If you don't, I would welcome you to... to like, one thing that we're going to do this semester is Mondays from 3 to 5. I know a lot of you have class. But we're going to go and like, be with kids at an apartment complex in a lower-income neighborhood just like, a, like five minutes that way. We would love for you to come with us. Because God is a God who moves towards people who are in need. He, and he did that for us. He welcomes us into doing that for the world. If you're not a Christian, my, what I hold out to you tonight is the hope that you do not have to be in bondage to death. You don't have to be afraid of it. Because in Christ, you can be free. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that um, if anyone is in Christ, that he or she is free indeed. And I pray that, that the um, significance of that would, um, and the truth of that, would go into our hearts and out of our lives as we live in this world, and that that would be for the good of this world and for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.